Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about James Dean are insane. He died in a high-speed car crash at just 24 years old. His death was foretold by a fellow movie star one week before it happened. Rumors he survived the deadly crash were spurred on, and in some cases planted by a film studio with a financial stake in keeping his memory alive. The car that killed him had a grisly afterlife of its own, taking two more lives before mysteriously disappearing forever. Unlike James Dean, whose legend lives on. Because James Dean made great movies. And although he only made three in his lifetime, he remains one of the greatest American actors in the history of film. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Bessie Smith performing Haunted House Blues in 1924. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Walt Disney's Lady in the Tramp. And why would I play you that particular slice of spaghetti-sharing Parmesan cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on September 30th, 1955. And that was the day that James Dean died in a brutal crash on a California highway. On this episode, a death foretold, a gruesome publicity stunt, a haunted race car, and James Dean. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season 7, Hollywoodland. There wasn't shit to do once the sun went down in Fayette, North Carolina. The army grunts bust in from Fort Bragg were looking to fuck or fight. And this town had limited options for either. But they did find a lurid poster, plastered to a light post on what passed for the town's main drag. Karakum's International Mystery Show, it read. Ghosts will talk and sit with you. Vampires and zombies will attack you. Kara Coombe was the stage name of a Polish immigrant who'd been working the scare show circuit in the U.S. since the 40s. He had a thick mustache and wore a white tux and turban. He touted the International Mystery Show as the show that had baffled millions in Paris, London, Shanghai. The truth was, Kara Coombe struggled to stand out among other professional illusionists. But he had something the others didn't have. He could resurrect James Dean. It was 1957. Kara Coombs' act was one of the bloodier ones out there. He called up volunteers from the audience and appeared to cut off their heads with a meat cleaver. Then he tossed the severed heads into the crowd. But it was the James Dean trick that put butts in seats. Teenagers especially. Teeny bopper girls desperate to see Jimmy Dean one more time. Boys in red jackets and perfectly styled hair trying their best to look like Dean's ghost. The trick was simple. Kara Coombe brought out a life-sized, high-contrast negative of James Dean and 
invited the audience to focus their energy on it. If they did that, they could summon Dean back from the grave. Effectively, this meant the kids were staring at an image which left an impression on their retinas. Karakum let this go on for a minute, and then he suddenly shut off all the lights in the theater. There, on stage, a ghostly image of James Dean replaced the picture the audience was just looking at. Teenagers wept. They fainted. They were overwhelmed by this mystical visitation of a man from the great beyond. But not all of them. From the back of the theater, a group of angry teens started to heckle the show. This is bullshit, one of them shouted. Everyone knows James Dean never fucking died. Died, 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 died. When James Dean was killed in a car crash in 1955 at the age of 24, American teenagers went into hysterical mourning. It didn't matter that they'd only seen him in one movie. The press buildup for Rebel Without a Cause, the follow-up to his debut in East of Eden, successfully established Dean as one of the first teen idols alongside Elvis Presley, who hit the top of the charts that same year and had his own movie in the works. A network of fan clubs calling themselves the James Dean Memorial Ring sprung up around the country. The population of Dean's hometown of Fairmont, Indiana doubled when teenage mourners flooded in to watch Dean's ruined body get planted in the ground. This collective grief was enough to blow up the box office when Rebel Without a Cause hit screens just one month after Dean's death. Devoted fans and the morbidly curious alike packed movie houses to see Dean rehearse his own car crash fatality in the movie's legendary Chicky Run scene. Rebel rode Dean's ghost to huge financial success. But Dean had completed shooting on another film before he died, a Western epic called Giant. It would be a year before that movie hit screens. Conventional wisdom in Hollywood said nobody paid to watch a dead actor. There was something too morbid about watching a corpse walk around on screen. In a room thick with cigar smoke and the smell of whiskey, Warner Brothers executives decided to write off the big budget epic as a loss. No point throwing good money after bad. And then one of the execs noticed a note someone in the Warner Publicity Department had passed him. What if James Dean wasn't dead? It was too blatant a stunt for a major company like Warner Brothers to even consider. If they released a statement claiming that James Dean secretly survived the crash, it would be seen as a ghoulish and transparent cash grab. So Warner's issued a press release that said the opposite. The studio vehemently denies any rumor that James Dean is alive, even though there were no such rumors. And then they created the very rumors they were denying. The first step was to engage the cult of mourning around James Dean. Warner's hired a PR agent on the sly. He contacted the presidents of the many chapters of the James Dean Memorial Ring. He flew them to Hollywood, all expenses paid, of course, and he toured them around the Warner's lot, that sacred ground where their idol once walked. He told them they had to continue their vital work, keeping the memory of James Dean alive. And they returned to their hometown starry-eyed and full of purpose. They held monthly memorial services. They wore black armbands with Dean's face on them. They bought overpriced replicas of the red jacket from Rebel Without a Cause in such ridiculous numbers that every soda counter in the US looked like a casting call for a James Dean biopic. And they wrote letters begging the studio to send them any piece of James Dean that might still exist. They were true believers, and they wanted relics of their patron saint. Thousands of letters addressed to James Dean poured into Warner's offices every month, a fact the studio's publicity department dutifully reported to the press. Alive, 
Dean was on his way to becoming a teen idol. Dead, he was an object of cult worship and obsession. But nothing got to the core of the original pitch behind the viral PR campaign. The fan club memorial services, the for-profit occult shysters like Kara Coombe, even grieving co-stars like Sal Minio, alone in his apartment trying to summon Dean's ghost with a Ouija board. These things were all built on the very correct presumption that James Dean was dead. The trick was to make James Dean come back to life. The first story to make such a claim popped up on the other side of the country. A New York newspaper reported that Hollywood was buzzing with the rumor that Dean had actually survived the crash, but he was so disfigured that the studio was hiding him in an institution somewhere. And there was no such buzz. The story was planted by Warner's hired PR hack. More New York papers ran with it, and the hack copied the articles and sent them to his network of James Dean fan clubs. Letters poured into the Warner Brothers offices, addressed to Dean as if he were alive, trapped and in need of rescue. I know you are not dead, one of the letters read. I will leave my husband and my children, get good doctors, and heal you. In another, two women detailed their plan to set up a home where the three of them could live in polyamorous bliss. And in a third, a woman offered up skin from very sensitive parts of her body as grass for Dean's wounds. Warners leaked these letters to the press. Rumors of a rumor expanded into a bizarre cult of bobby soxers who believed, without any evidence, that James Dean had never died, and that they might be the ones to find him and save him. It was enough to keep James Dean's image in front of a million eyes for the year between his death and the release of Giant. And the movie was the top box office earner that year, scoring James Dean his second posthumous Oscar nomination. Once the film had earned its money back, Warners let the campaign die, but the rumors never entirely went away. Just like Elvis, James Dean was still alive. Jackie Curtis, one of the superstars of Andy Warhol's factory scene, claimed that Warhol was James Dean, and that Warhol's so-called acne scars were Dean's burn injuries from the crash. But Jackie herself wound up the Warhol scenester most linked with Dean, after Lou Reed wrote about her in Walk on the Wild Side, just speeding away, thinking she was James Dean for a day. You could hardly blame people for thinking they'd seen James Dean. Set free from his body, his image haunted the rest of the 20th century in the body of every greaser, rocker, and punk. No one would ever be more associated with that rock and roll mantra, live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse than James Dean. Except there was nothing good-looking about what happened to him. Alec Guinness stood at the intersection of Hollywood and Vine. It was late, and he was starving. But every restaurant turned him away. Maybe if his dinner date was Grace Kelly, the American actress co-starring with him in his first Hollywood film, he could have gotten a table. But his lady friend was wearing trousers, and that was a blatant violation of the dress code at every respectable Hollywood establishment. And it didn't matter that Guinness had a medal from the Queen, or that he had a lifetime of success in the British film industry. It didn't mean shit here. In America, he was a nobody. A very hungry nobody. Fuck it. He'd just go back to the hotel. Maybe room service could scare up a hamburger. Then he heard footsteps coming down Vine. Someone was running towards him, and the footsteps got faster and louder. Guinness panicked. Here he was, starving, and now he was about to get mugged to boot. 
He quickly turned around and saw a short, skinny boy running to catch up. The boy skidded to a stop and swept back his hair. He was undeniably gorgeous, but Guinness didn't recognize him. The boy spoke while trying to catch his breath. I saw you get turned away at that Italian place up the street. My name's James Dean. Do you want to come eat with me? Guinness recognized the name. There was buzz around Dean's performance in East of Eden, and the publicity blitz leading up to Rebel Without a Cause was in full swing. But the press painted the young actor as cool and aloof, sometimes even rude or standoffish. The kid standing in front of Guinness now was none of those things. Honestly, it didn't matter if the kid was nice or not. Alec Guinness just needed to eat. He took James Dean up on his offer. But before they sat down, Dean had something he was dying to show off. His new car. Parked out front of the restaurant was a Porsche 550 Spider, a lightweight, low-to-the-ground speedster. It was silver with bright red tartan seats and the number 130 custom painted in black on the hood and little bastard in neat cursive on the trunk. Dean beamed. The Porsche was his baby. He picked it up from the detailing guy that afternoon. Alec Guinness wasn't much of a car guy, but he didn't want to be rude. How fast can he go in that, he asked. Dean said he could go 150. Guinness felt something like a cold hand on the back of his neck. He heard himself speaking, but it didn't sound like his voice, and the words came from nowhere. Please don't get in that car, Guinness said. If you get in that car, by 10 o'clock next Thursday, you'll be dead. Alec Guinness and James Dean stood on the sidewalk in awkward silence. Dean began to laugh. Guinness's reputation as a comedic actor was well known, and Dean figured this was some weird gag, some kind of British humor. Guinness apologized. He didn't know why he'd said that didn't know where those words had even come from. And they went into the restaurant and had a pleasant meal and made promises to see each other again. A week later, a Thursday, James Dean crashed the Porsche and was dead. James Dean's obsession with speed went back to his childhood in Fairmont, Indiana, a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Dean got his first motorcycle when he was 15, a little 1947CZ125CC. It could hit 50 on the flat open plains. Dean and some of the other boys met up on the weekends at the local cycle shop. They shot the shit, fixed their bikes, and raced around the back lot. And if the weather was too shitty to race, Dean would dream up races, casting each of his biker friends in an imaginary competition. He grabbed the mic plugged into the shop speaker system and gave the play-by-play -play in his head and the other bikers sat listening as Dean narrated, holding their breath as they made a jump, wincing as their imaginary bikes crashed. Dean never crashed. Some of the hack biographies that were rushed to press after he died claimed he knocked his two front teeth out in a motorcycle accident as a kid. Dean had knocked out his teeth. One of his favorite gags was to slide the bridge that held his two fake teeth out of his mouth in the middle of a meal to shock his dates. But it wasn't a bike accident that cost him his chompers, just to fall on the high school basketball court. Maybe if Dean had crashed his bike, even once, he would have been a little more inclined to pump the brakes now and then. But James Dean was all gas. When it was time for him to try his luck in New York, Dean upgraded to a Royal Enfield with 500 cc's, the kind of massive engine bike that the Army used. And while he was a student at the legendary actor's studio, Dean woke before dawn and rode around the empty Manhattan streets, listening to the sound of his engine echo in the canyon of the city's buildings. Fame and money brought better, faster bikes, and Dean bought a Triumph TR5, the same bike his hero Marlon Brando rode in The Wild One. 
Dean rode into a party at the Chateau Marmont. He spotted Shelley Winters driving with Marilyn Monroe to the same party. He circled their car on his bike. He weaved in and out of traffic, and then he braked hard right in front of them. Shelley Winters was not having it. She laid on the horn, and Marilyn sat rigid in the passenger seat. Dean pulled in ahead of them at the Chateau Marmont's parking lot, grinned like a little bastard. Shelley Winters wanted to deck him, and Marilyn wanted nothing to do with him. She refused to talk to him at the party. It was the only time the two icons ever spent in the same room, and they spent it at opposite corners. James Dean's invite to the Chateau Marmont had come from Nicholas Ray, who was directing him in Rebel Without a Cause. That film's legendary Chicky Run scene where Dean and his rival race toward a cliff, and the first one to bail out of their car gets branded a chicken, was based on a supposedly true account of a race gone bad. And for the shoot, all precautions were taken to make sure no one actually got hurt. It was shot on a plateau at the Warner's Ranch, with the car speeding toward a shallow ravine rather than a cliff. Dean was body doubled for the stunt where he jumps out of the moving car. The last shot, where Dean and the rest of the kids look over the edge of the bluff onto the flaming wreckage, was shot on a soundstage, with everyone staring at a black cloth. Dean devoured an apple and then spattered ketchup on the core. He threw it onto the black cloth as a focus point, a dead body abstracted. Dean's speed fixation soon turned to race cars. His first one was a little MG with enough muscle to get him in an amateur race. He had no experience, no pit crew, just some guys who knew him from the studio lot and jumped in to help him out. Dean bounced off hay bales at every hairpin turn, refusing to tap the brakes, but he won. He upgraded to a Porsche Speedster with the money he got when he landed the role in Rebel. Nicholas Ray didn't even mind when Jimmy disappeared from the set to compete. Four days before the end of shooting, Dean was in a 10-lap race in Santa Barbara. He clawed his way up from 18th to fourth place. On the fifth lap, he saw an opening and gunned the engine. It was too much. The car blew a piston and Dean didn't finish, but he was lucky. He wasn't hurt. He never got hurt. The studio heard about the race and they were spooked. They couldn't have James Dean messing up that pretty face of his. They banned him from racing while he shot his next film, Giant, and that was fine. He registered himself in a race in Salinas that would take place immediately after shooting was set to wrap in September. And he bought a Porsche 550 Spider, the last car he ever owned. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. James Dean stood in front of the Porsche dealership off Mulholland Drive and stared out at the open road. There was still a little of his last roll in his blood, lingering like a cold he couldn't shake. When he was making Giant, director George Stevens would ask Dean to stare into the distance, just like this, for take after take. It got to be a habit, but there was something comforting about it. The morning sun behind him cast his shadow long across the pavement. It looked to be a good day. In the garage, Rolf Wutherick made final tweaks to Dean's new Porsche 550 Spider. Tomorrow was the big day, the race in Salinas. Rolf was a former Nazi pilot, but he was also Dean's friend and mechanic. The two of them bonded with their heads stuck under the hood of fast cars. Dean studied Rolf's movements, his accent, storing those details away, 
Sooner or later, a studio would ask him to do a war film. All the big actors eventually did a war film. Wouldn't it be something, though, to flip it, do it different, and play a German? We'd give you an Oscar if you could pull something like that off. Rolf came around from the back and gave the thumbs up. The Porsche was ready to go. Dean nodded. He caught his reflection in the showroom window. Hair and makeup had shaved his hairline back for the last act of Giant to age his character. He looked at himself and smirked. He wondered if that was what he'd really look like when he got old. Dean and Ralph hitched the trailer to Dean's Ford station wagon and drove off the lot. It was Ralph who convinced Dean to buy the Porsche. Not that it took too much convincing. It was the newest, fastest model. Only a few dozen were made. The fact that there was one on the lot when Dean happened to stop by, well, it had to be fate, didn't it? They had lunch with Dean's father and Uncle Charlie at the farmer's market. Uncle Charlie taught Dean to ride his first motorcycle, and Dean wanted him to come see the race. But the older men both had better things to do than haul their tired bones out to Salinas to watch cars whiz by. Dean and Rolf kept moving. They stopped by the house of photographer Sandy Roth to pick up Roth and Bill Hickman, Dean's dialogue coach from Giant, who were both set to come up to the race. Dean stared north toward an all-day drive in perfect California weather. No fucking way did he want to be cooped up in a station wagon with three other guys. Besides, he hadn't really driven the car yet, except to show it off around Hollywood. He hadn't opened it up. Rolf always said he never wanted to enter a car into a race raw. Put a thousand miles on the engine to break it in, get it race ready. Rolf offered to ride shotgun in the Porsche to Salinas so Dean could get used to the car, even though the car didn't have a passenger safety belt. They left LA at a quarter after one, the Porsche in the lead and the station wagon struggling to keep up. And they talked about the next day's races. Don't race to win, Rolf said. Don't go too fast. He knew how Dean liked to race. Pedal to the floor on the straightaways. No thought to what was up ahead. Like the car's engine, Dean needed some mileage on him. A little breaking in. Dean laughed. Who didn't race to win? What the fuck was too fast supposed to mean? Dean pulled off the road south of Bakersfield so Rolf could check the engine. Ideally, you broke in a car under track conditions. Smooth pavement, no jostles or bumps. The highway was no place for a car like this. Everything under the hood looked fine and the pit stop gave the station wagon a chance to catch up. But we could barely keep you inside at 60, Sandy Roth said. Dean smirked. They'd just have to go faster. On the other side of Bakersfield, Dean got pulled over by the California Highway Patrol doing 65 and a 45. And the station wagon got popped too. Their ticket was double because they were hauling the empty trailer, but nobody sweated it. They were riding with James Dean. Everything would be taken care of. Somewhere near Lost Hills at around five o'clock, Dean caught a glimpse of a beautiful car at a gas station and laid on the brakes. The owner of the Mercedes was headed to the same races at Salinas and they took turns looking under each other's hoods. A real honest-to-God dick-measuring contest. Dean sweet-talked the guy, but grinned devilishly as he turned back to his crew. He was gonna bury that fucking relic. Paso Robles was an hour west. Dean and Rolf would meet the others there for dinner and then power through the last hundred miles to Salinas. Dean knew he could make it there well under an hour. He bought a bag of apples and jumped into the driver's seat next to Rolf, not bothering to buckle his belt. He bit into an apple, and the juice ran down his chin. He turned the key and the engine roared to life, and the little car vibrated with promise. Dean left the station wagon in the dust. He blazed through the desert into the setting sun, west on Route 466. 
and the engine hummed a lullaby. Ralph dozed in the heat. Dean nudged Ralph awake. He didn't want to be alone. Down the road, a college student in a Ford sedan came to the intersection of 466 and Route 41. He looked as far as he could along the flat expanse of highway. He didn't see anyone coming. He didn't see anything. Not even the low slung race car. So low and so fast that it melted into the pavement. And the kid started into his left turn. Dean saw the Ford but didn't care. The kid driving the sedan could worry about it. He'd see Dean coming and get the hell out of the way. It was one more cheeky run, just like in the movie. There would always be stunt doubles to execute the role and fake bodies to toss out of tumbling cars. But when it was over, Dean could stare at an apple core in the abyss and pretend he saw a flaming wreck. And then they'd do it again. James Dean didn't break. He didn't swerve. And the poor spider slammed into the Ford at 85 miles an hour. The light aluminum body of the Porsche crumpled like an empty candy wrapper against two tons of American steel. Ralph was thrown clear. The Ford spun out for 40 feet before slowing to a stop. Its driver opened the door and walked away unscathed. James Dean, meanwhile, was pinned in the Porsche. His neck snapped. Racers had a word for it. Stretched. As close as you can get to being decapitated while your head is still attached. Minutes later, James Dean was pronounced dead on arrival at Paso Robles War Memorial Hospital. His Porsche 550 Spider was still spewing smoke in the desert night. High school kids don't get riled up over an auto safety demonstration. It beats math class, but who wants some donut-munching member of the California Highway Patrol lecturing you about checking your rear view and slowing the fuck down? But the demo at this high school in Sacramento is different. Kids there are buzzing. And they wear their red jackets, and they sport their black armbands. They're about to see the car that killed James Dean. The line flies into the gymnasium. And on the shitty PA speaker, the cop talks about braking distance and night visibility. But the kids aren't listening. They're focused on the hunk of twisted silver metal at the far end of the gym. And they wait for their chance to get close to it, and maybe even touch it if the cops who brought it aren't too busy being total cops. But the boy in the red jacket with the perfect hair, one of a dozen boys sporting the same look, gets his chance. He approaches the car on the pedestal like he would a casket at a funeral only there's no body inside. He imagines James Dean sprawled backwards across the driver's seat like Christ on the cross, his body broken, but his face still perfect. The boy can almost see it. He reaches out to touch James Dean. There's a sudden creak of metal as the pedestal holding the car bends and breaks. The car tumbles forward, slow but intentional, as if it woke up hungry. It falls onto the boy. It shatters his hip. It pins him to the gym floor. Everyone gasps. Everyone looks at him. This would be the way to go, the boy thinks, as the cops struggle to pull the wreck off of him. Everyone watching me. Just like James Dean. James Dean's Porsche 550 Spider was a twisted wreck. It was towed off to a salvage yard in Burbank, where eventually another racer named Dr. William Esrich bought it for parts. He dropped the Porsche's powerful engine into his Lotus 9 and sold the suspension to a friend and fellow racer, Troy McHenry, to fix up his own Porsche Speedster. 
The two racers were scheduled to meet on the track at Pomona in August 1956, and this is almost a year after James Dean's death, at the height of the idol-worshipping death cults. Teens in red jackets and black armbands crowded into the stands to see relics of James Dean face each other on the raceway. In the first lap, Troy McHenry lost control of his Porsche. It veered off the raceway and smashed into the only tree on the track. He died instantly. Esridge sped past the wreck into another lap. Without any warning or apparent reason, his wheels locked up as he approached the next turn. His Lotus 9 flipped, and the little aluminum speedster bounced across the track like a dropped dime. It came to rest along the Outer Edge barricade in front of a crowd of shocked James Dean worshippers. Esridge was seriously injured. But when he recovered, a reporter asked him if he thought the car that killed James Dean was cursed. No, he said. These things just happen. But his first order of business when he got home was to get the remains of James Dean's Porsche the fuck out of his life. George Barris, who detailed the Porsche for Dean, bought it off Esridge for $2,500. He claimed he was going to fix it up. But there was no fixing a wreck like this. Barris bought the Porsche intending to turn a morbid profit off of it. It didn't work. While Barris's guys were loading it onto the truck to haul it out of Estridge's garage, the Porsche slipped off the trailer and broke a mechanic's leg. Classified ads for tiny aluminum scraps from the car that killed James Dean started showing up in newspapers and in mailings to James Dean fan clubs. The scraps were as real as splinters claiming to be pieces of the true cross, but that didn't stop fans from paying for them. Barris decided to just rent the wreck out to the California Highway Patrol's Council on Safety, who wanted to tour it around as a cautionary tale. They housed it in a police garage in Fresno, planning to display it at an event the next day. And the garage caught fire that night, and the Porsche Spider was surprisingly unharmed. And then the Porsche harmed a student when it slipped off its stand and broke a kid's hip at that driver's ed event at a Sacramento high school. And then, as it was being transported to a road safety show on a flatbed truck, the Porsche rolled off the trailer, flipped forward, and crushed the truck driver, killing him. California Highway Patrol returned the Porsche to Barris. No particular reason given. Barris kept renting it out to other highway safety groups, not mentioning the gruesome afterlife of the car. Certainly not using the words some people had started to mention when referring to it. Cursed. In 1960, the Porsche was supposedly on its way back to Barris from a safety expo in Miami when it disappeared from a sealed boxcar. It was never found. In 2021, a transaxle was authenticated as the last surviving part of James Dean's Porsche 550 Spider. It sold at auction for 382 grand to a paranormal investigator and reality television personality. He put it on display in his Las Vegas Museum of Haunted Objects. He keeps it behind glass so it can't hurt anybody else. It's a morbid shrine to a story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. 
If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.